pray for Tuesday and this election. We, we trust it all to you. We pray, Lord, for your mercy on our community, our state, our country. We certainly ask you would show mercy in results of elections and the consequences that flow from those elections. But Lord, ultimately, we pray for the gospel to go forth and that you would be merciful to draw many to salvation, that heart by heart, life by life, family by family, things would be changed in a much better way. And even beyond that, we look forward to Christ's kingdom, to his return. Trust you for that. Lord, we pray, thanking you for Pastor Scott and Gina and Samir's trip. Bless with fruit the ministry they've had there. Bring them home safely. We pray, Lord, for the blessing of the ministry of the gospel around this world and here in our country, in our state, our community, through us here in Riverbend, in our area. Lord, we pray you'd bless the rest of our worship this morning and in the preaching of your word. Lord, get me out of the way. Let guide what I end up saying and let it be true, true to your word. Lord, work in all of our hearts with your word to draw to salvation those not in Christ, to sanctify us who are in your grace and all for your glory. And Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This section of scripture we're going to look at today, um, like much of the Bible, is written in historical narrative. As history, it's accurate. It's describing real events. And because it's God-breathed scripture, it describes those events with complete accuracy. No other history can do that because we're, we're, you know, we're weak and we're not all knowing like the Lord is. And then we're sinful and, and that gets mixed in as we uh, reach conclusions and write things. Not that we shouldn't pursue it and pursue it with as much accuracy as possible, but here it is true. And it's also narrative, meaning it's a story. These are stories. They're real stories, but they are stories. They're literature. In fact, the Bible's filled with all kinds of literature. Historical narrative is one of those, and the Bible's the best literature. So it's much more than literature. It's God's breathed word. It's truth, but it's not less than literature. And, and well-written historical narratives in the Bible draw on our imagination. They help us to to see and to hear and taste and smell and touch these events, the things that are being described. That's what great literature does. And so as we approach Scripture, whether it's narrative or any of the types of literature God inspired in his word, we should not approach it as dry and boring. It's not like a vegetable that's good for us and we kind of hold our nose and force it down. That shouldn't be our approach to Scripture. It should be our favorite vegetable that we love to eat and is good for us. Scripture is, is amazing. And praise the Lord, we're led by Pastor Scott. Riverbend, Riverbend approaches Scripture with excitement and anticipation, and, and we should always do that. But not only when we come to church together, but when we read it by ourselves and when we study it by ourselves and in, in every situation, be amazed by the Word of God. Today, here in... In chapters 24, 25, and 26 of 1 Samuel, we have three stories, three events in the life of David that are, that are connected. Now, we're not going to read all three chapters, and we'll focus most on the first story in chapter 24, then we'll make quicker connections with the other two. Obviously, we won't be able to dive into the depths of everything in these chapters, but there's a, there's a theme through all three that are connected that I want us to explore in the time we have this morning. Before we begin the first, let me share a little bit of background. David knew the scriptures. The scripture that had, that had been revealed so far, the Bible indicates David knew those scriptures well. For instance, Psalm 119, verse 11, he writes, Your word, speaking of the Lord's word, how I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Then verse 97 Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He knew the scriptures. 
And so he would have known from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that Moses was God's chosen anointed leader for the Israelites. And from Exodus 30, that Aaron was the anointed high priest for the nation. He would have known from Numbers 16 and 17 that Korah, uh, Dathan, and Abiram rose up against Moses and Aaron and brought others, got others to be involved in this rebellion against them as God's anointed leaders. And he would have known that God then opened up the earth beneath these men, their entire families, all of their belongings, swallowed them and closed back up. He would have known that then God sent fire and consumed 250 other men that were involved in the rebellion. He would have known that the next day the Israelites were still rebellious and God sent a plague among them and 14,700 of them died before Aaron was able to make atonement according to God's directions and the plague stopped. I believe David knew clearly from God's word, do not lift up your hand against God's anointed. As we approach chapter 24 here, we should note that earlier in chapter 16, Samuel anointed David at God's direction to be the next king of Israel, that he was promised the kingship, that he was the Lord's anointed. David then entered service of King Saul. Great trust in the Lord. He kills Goliath. He then goes on to kill many Philistines. Great feats. He marries Saul's daughter. He makes a covenant with Saul's son, Jonathan. And in, in all of these things, King Saul is jealous. He becomes very fearful of David, and he, and he wants David dead. So David has to flee he has to live in hiding, ends up with men around him in that. We come to chapter 23, Saul's chasing him, he's getting close. The result will be David's death. And then Philistines attack, he has to go and take care of that situation, and we come to chapter 24. Through this event, and through the two that follow, we can see and we can learn from the example of the Lord's interaction with David, that the Lord protects and strengthens David's faith to follow God's word and to wait for God's providence. To follow God's word as the one ultimate source for truth and for guidance, to know what does God want me to do and not do? What does God want me to be and not be? And then to wait for God's providence, his sovereign work to accomplish all that he has promised. So number one, the Lord protects and strengthens David's faith to follow God's word and wait for God's providence by working in David's conscience to not mistake God's providence for his word. To not look to, to providential circumstances and say, oh, that means God wants me to do X, Y, or Z. Let's read the first five verses here of 1 Samuel 24. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Saul is relentless. As soon as he'd finished with the Philistine threat, immediately he resumes hunting David. In God's providence, he has Saul need to use the restroom. Choose this one particular cave to go into. And in the back of that cave, in the dark, are David and his men. Saul's unaware of it. And David's men seize on this. They, they believe this is it. And they argue along two lines. One, one line is Saul is seeking to kill David, so he's his enemy, and so David should kill him first, given this opportunity. And then their main argument is, the Lord's done this. 
The, the Lord's created this circumstance. He's, he's put Saul right here in this cave by himself with us. He doesn't know we're here. It's the opportunity. It's, it's God's fulfilling what he said. He's going to put your enemy in your hand. They're arguing that circumstance is determining what God wants David to do. Now, a couple things. Their first argument, someone else's sin against us should never justify our sin against them. But then their main argument about circumstance, we can probably relate to that. It's a common tendency of people, including God's people, including believers, to, to see circumstances God speaking to us. We see in what we call an open door, well, that means God wants us to go through it. But it doesn't necessarily mean God wants us to go through it. God, now, God is absolutely providentially in control of circumstances. It's just that the circumstance can't reveal to us what God wants us to do in the circumstance. And David's going to end up realizing that, and we should realize that as well. In verse 10, he's going to recognize God's providential hand in this and thank God for it. But to determine God's will of what he should do, we, he and we should look to the word of God. The word of God tells us what to do and not to do, not the circumstance. Even though God's sovereign over all circumstance. Immediately, however, in this moment, his, his men sharing this, there's Saul in the cave. David stealthily goes over and cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And we don't know if it was still on Saul and just the, the end of it was where David could, without being noticed, do that. Or maybe he took it off and laid it aside. But anyway, he gets the corner of this robe. We can't be completely certain the significance of that act. But I think we almost can be because there's enough clues that I think point to what David was, was doing here. And for a key clue, turn back a few chapters to chapter 15, 1 Samuel Verse 27, Saul, as king, had sinned. Samuel's rebuking him. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. David is that neighbor. David would have known that event, would have known what Samuel said. And so it seems pretty certain to me that he did this as an intentional symbolic act that the kingdom was rightfully his and not Saul's. The problem with his doing this right now is that Saul is still king. The Lord had not removed him from being king yet. And the symbolic act, if followed through with further action, would mean he would kill Saul and seize the kingdom. In other words, he would raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Del Ralph Davis points out that such symbolism would explain the conviction and the remorse in verse 5 of David's conscience. And thankfully, the Lord does work in his conscience to, to not make this mistake of seeing God's providence as God's word. It's a great blessing of the Lord. If our conscience is quick to convict us when we sin, we should pray that the Lord work in our conscience so that it does so. David responds by taking heed to his conscience right away. We'd be wise to do the same because we can't harden our conscience where it becomes very insensitive to our sin. Now, this point about conscience is not, it's not saying to us, follow your heart to know what to do. That's not biblical. That's, that's more Disney theology. That's not biblical theology. Our conscience, because of our sin, can be misled. It can get things wrong. It can be deceived. It can be hardened, as we mentioned. And so we should seek to educate, to inform our conscience from the word of God. When we face decisions or our conscience is acting, seek wise counsel from those who will counsel us from the word of God. And, and ultimately, it's the word that guides us. But God uses the conscience in connection with his word. And be very careful not to go against your conscience and harden it. 
Let's go on. Number two. The Lord protects and strengthens David's faith to follow God's word and wait for God's providence by working in David to follow God's revealed word to tell him what God wants him to do. Let's read verse 6. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. His conscience is stricken. He remembers what he knows from Scripture and he states it. From Numbers 16 and 17, don't lift your hand against the Lord's anointed. We, We should follow David's example here of looking to the Word of God as our authority, as the determiner of what God's will for us is to do and to be, to not do, to not be. And that's not always easy. The scripture doesn't name every decision that we, that we face. And so how do we decide in this decision what God wants us to do? Let me give a recommendation. Years ago, John MacArthur wrote a little booklet called Found God's Will. I read it in college. It has been so helpful through the years. It's still available. I recommend it to you. And what he, basically what he does is he walks through five clear statements in Scripture of God's will for all of us to be saved, 1 Timothy 2, which that's the starting point of following God's word and waiting for God's providence. We, we, can't, we can't follow David's example until we're saved, until we repent of our sin, we look to Christ alone, the God-man who lived the sinless life we failed to, who went to the cross in place of sinners and satisfied the wrath of God, who died, was buried, and then rose again victorious. It's not till we put faith in Christ to forgive us, to make us his, that we can even start to follow this example in any biblical instruction. It starts there, and and that's God's will, his prescribed will. Now, his decreed will, not all... He doesn't draw out of all of us who are condemned ourselves in our sin. But his his, uh, prescribed will, what he tells us we should do is true for everybody. We're called to salvation. Secondly, we're called to be spirit-filled, Ephesians 5. We're called to be being sanctified, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're, We're called to be submissive to the Lord ultimately and into the other authorities he puts rightly in our lives, 1 Peter 2. We're called to suffer in following Christ. That that will be necessary at times to faithfully follow him. I mean, 2 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 4. And so he walks through these and says, if we're living in these things that are clearly God's will for us, not perfectly, we won't be perfect till heaven, but sinning less and less, living more and more righteously by God's grace, being quick to repent when when we fall. He said then, he takes us to Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Not meaning the desire you had before you delighted in the Lord. If you check off these boxes of delighting the Lord, he'll give you that. But, but rather, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll transform the desires of your heart to match his will. What he wants you to do. And then do it. Always, always and he rightly advises, always checking back to the word of God. Because he won't put a desire in our heart that's different from what Scriptures clearly teach that will violate those scriptures. Always seek wise counsel. You can make pros and cons lists. But ultimately, it's word of God. Guided by the word of God that sets the parameters to make these decisions of what we should do. Let's go on. Thirdly, the Lord protects and strengthens David's faith to follow God's word and wait for God's providence. By working in David did not mistake the majority view as being God's revelation of what he should do. Verse 7, David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. David persuaded his men with these words. It's a strong word. Delroth Davis paraphrases it. David tore apart his men with the words. Imagine this. They had to be quiet. Darkness, the Imagine the the silence would almost accentuate the intensity 
with which he's speaking the word of God in the face of, it sounds like everybody else with him, the majority, saying, no, I'm not going to raise my hand against God's anointed, and neither are you. So clearly, David did not look to the majority view to determine what God's will was. He stood firm against the majority. We should do, we should do the same. Beware of letting the majority view lead us to think, well, then that's God's, that's God's will. By way of application, there's probably countless things we could think of, but I, a couple come to mind in our society today. One would be premarital physical intimacy, not only, not only in our general society, but in church society in America today. It has become just socially accepted. It's okay. No. The word of God is not, it's not ambiguous. It's not up to interpretation. It's absolutely clear all the way through Scripture. God designed physical intimacy for a man and a woman in marriage, period. Anything outside of that is sin. And if you claim Christ and you're living in that sin, repent, get out of that, and live a chaste life to the glory of God. That's, that's the word of God. That's what it says. There's no ambiguity. And we shouldn't let the majority of you say, well, it's okay because everyone thinks it's okay. The only one that matters is God. What does God say is okay and is not okay? And he tells us that because we're blessed in what he says is right and good. And we are cursed. We suffer consequences when we rebel and go against it. No matter how widespread acceptance is, of those things. Well, you could already guess the next thing, because it's gone, gone beyond heterosexual violation of that to the whole LBGTQ plus array of issues. And boy, there the push is so strong that it should be accepted as the majority view, it's okay, and that anything whatsoever against it must be crushed. I heard this week on uh, Al Mohler's daily briefing, medical associations are headlong going into the acceptance of even mutilating young people's bodies to transition. That is horrific and a violation of the word of God. Pray for physicians, because that's putting all kinds of pressure on them. Pray for Christian physicians to be able to stand true to the word of God and wait for God's providence. But it won't be limited there. It's be all of us. We could suffer persecution in this area the way things are shaping up. We pray not. I hope we vote Tuesday not. Maintain religious liberty and all those things, but we trust God. Follow the word of God and wait on the providence of God. And, and we're also accused that if we say what God's word says about these things, that we're haters. And it's the exact opposite. If we don't speak up, we're hating those caught up in LBGTQ plus things. Because we're sinners as well. And somebody spoke the word of God to us, which reveals to us our sin, which tells us our need for Christ so that we would repent and trust Christ and know the joy of his salvation. Well, they need to know the joy of his salvation too. It's hateful to say, well, no one wants us to speak up and, and they, they're going to think we hate them. Would you rather them think you hate them or in reality hate them by denying them the gospel? Because not speaking up of what the Bible says is sin is denying people in those sins the gospel. Pray. Pray God will give us courage that will speak in love, but speak the truth and point them to the Savior, the only one who can give them that joy of salvation, give them his forgiveness, make them right with him now and forever, and transform them from the inside out. And that's Jesus Christ. Well, back to David. David, he not only had to stand firm on God's word and not lift his hand against God's anointed, he had to, he had to stop his men from sinning for him and keep them from striking Saul. 
Matthew Henry notes at this point, he says, Thus did he render good for evil to him from whom he had received evil for good, and was herein both a type of Christ who saved his persecutors, and an example to all Christians not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Fourth, the Lord protects and strengthens David's faith to follow God's word and wait for God's providence by working in David to call out to the Lord and trust the Lord to avenge him and to deliver him. We see this in David's words to Saul, starting at verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David calls Saul to account for his sin against David. He's pursuing the one who's also anointed, raising his hands against the Lord's anointed. He's listening to false accusations. And David's saying, I have proof that I am not out to kill you. Now he does call to the Lord, Lord, judge between us, avenge me. On Saul, he says that to Saul's face, to the Lord, avenge me against him, but I will not raise my hand against you, Saul. He's committed to follow God's word and wait for God's providence. He recognizes he must never seek a shortcut to God's promise. Del Ralph Davis makes a great point that I would paraphrase, God's means must be used in God's timing to reach God's end. We can't say, well, this is God's end. It is God's end that David will be king. But David can't use his own means to reach that end. He has to wait on the Lord's means, the Lord's timing. It was the temptation Satan gave to Christ. Skip the cross, skip the second coming, bow to me and you'll be ruler over all the nations. And of course, Christ was impeccable. He didn't fall to that temptation, but that's the temptation. And we face those things too and must stand firm by God's grace. We see David's faith growing even through the Psalms he wrote about this event. Tom earlier read Psalm 57 of this trusting the Lord to deliver him. We could see it also in Psalm 142. I encourage you to check that one out as well. But let's move on. Fifthly, the Lord protects and strengthens David's faith to follow God's word and wait for God's providence by encouraging David through Saul's response. In verses, beginning of verse 16, Saul recognizes his wrong. I wouldn't call it repentance, especially two chapters later would, would point that way, but, but he does desist for the moment. And, and Matthew Henry points out a great point. He says, Saul should have said, you are righteous, but I am wicked. Instead, he just says, you are more righteous than I. But he does recognize David's righteous actions. Then verse 20, look at verse 20. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Wow. He knows it. He recognizes this is God in David being the next king. And then he asks David to swear not to wipe out Saul's family when David becomes king. And David does swear that. God as David's enemy recognized God's promise of the kingship going to David and encourages David through that. And note as well, this whole chapter, God protects David from the outward enemy of King Saul coming to kill him. At the end of the chapter, Saul goes home. God, God uses 
working in David to spare Saul's life to save David from Saul. As believers, we can and should trust the Lord to protect us from our outward enemies, including Satan and his demons, including the world system around us. We can trust the Lord. He'll put us through trials. He says so. But we can trust him to bring us through them. Follow his word. Wait for his providence. Let's move on to the second story, the second event. And again, before, before we dive in, background. David, remember, knows the scriptures well. So he would have known Deuteronomy 32, 35, where the Lord says, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. Then Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So with that in mind, number six, the Lord protects and strengthens David's faith to follow God's word and wait for God's providence by intervening to stop him from sin and to bring him back. David needed this correction. David was allowing the sin of someone else to justify him sinning in response. So we have this man Nabal here in chapter 25 who's going to sin against David. He's his introduction speaks of his business he has in Carmel. He's very rich. He has 3,000 sheep. He has 1,000 goats. He's shearing his sheep in Carmel. All of this information before he's even named, and it seems to point to his priorities. He's trusting in the things of this life, in his wealth. That's his priority, not the Lord. And then his name is given, which means fool. It's fitting. Because it is being foolish to trust the things of this world and not the Lord. His wife is introduced. Her name is Abigail. A name, Matthew Henry points out, her name means the joy of her father. And he makes a side note, I think worth noting, in the form of a question. Did Abigail's father marry her off to Nabal because of his wealth, without consideration of his character, of his faith? If, if you desire to marry, you're unmarried, you desire to marry, that's a good desire. That's, God created us with that desire, Genesis 1. There are exceptions. He gifts some for singleness. He's, his, he's faithful when just the world and the fallenness creates other singleness. He's faithful. But the normal desire is right and good to want to marry. But be wise in choosing whom to marry. And those of us in the role of parents who are advising and counseling and and have the role of blessing that, be wise in that counsel and blessing. Well, Abigail here is described as intelligent and beautiful, Nabal as harsh and evil. So David, as the story is going along, he hears about Nabal shearing his sheep. It's a time of, it's near the harvest time, it's a time of festivities, and um, it's a good opportunity to ask for some supplies. So he sends 10 young men to ask Nabal for provisions. David's men had been protecting Nabal's men out in the wilderness. David, in, in his fleeing from Saul, wasn't just hiding. He was being productively active to protect God's people. And in fact, later, one of the servants of Nabal would tell Abigail in verse 16 that David's men were a wall to us both by, night, by day and night. Well, so they come and they ask very politely, very um, complimentary of Nabal, representing David, the anointed next king, incidentally. And Nabal claims ignorance. Doesn't even know who David is. He insults him with this because he does know. He says he's Jesse's son. He says he's fleeing from Saul. Uh, we know Abigail later knows David is the next king. Nabal would have known that. But he just responds with this great insult. And, and let's read verses 10 and 11. And as I read, note the repetition of I and my from Nabal. Chapter 25, verse 10. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? 
Well, David's men turn around, they go back, they report to David Nabal's response. Look at verse 13, David's response. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the luggage. David is furious. He's livid at this dishonor shown to him as God's anointed, to his men of all they had worked to, to help this sheep shearing be so productive because they had protected those sheep and the men watching them. And he's, he's out to set things right, to seek vengeance for himself on Nabal. He needs correction. Do we ever do this? Someone sins against us and we justify a sinful response because of what they did. He did such and such to me, so I'm going to show him. Harshness, slander, adultery, all kinds of sins, even murder, have been justified in people's minds because of the sin of the other person. And God's word says no. Another sin does not justify us to sin. We should follow God's word even when others do not. Another caution I think we can learn in this is don't mistake passion as telling us what God's will is for us to do. David was passionate. He was right. Nabal did sin here. He was right to want it set straight, but he was sinning in how he was out to set it straight. Now, don't misunderstand. There can be passion in following God's word. Just think of Christ cleaning out the temple. He was passionate in anger. He was sinless in that. It was a righteous anger. He was passionate fulfilling the word of God to protect the sanctity of the temple. Or even here in this book, Samuel hacking King Agag to death because God's command is to be fulfilled completely. And Saul had spared the king's life and spared some of the animals, and Saul, uh, Samuel would have none of it. He was passionate following the word of God. Well, God here with David uses Abigail to intervene and stop David from sinning and correct him to follow God's word again. God's gracious providence worked this out. He works out all the details where the servant would come to Abigail to tell her what happened so that she would be aware, so she could respond. And she acts quickly. She sends the provisions asked for. She sends them as gifts to David ahead of her. Then she gets on a donkey and goes to meet him. He's coming down the secret side of the mountain. She would have known that. Remember, he's running from Saul. She meets him. She gets out. She bows before him. She takes the blame. She doesn't excuse Nabal's sin and foolishness. She's, she's being faithful to her husband because she's advocating for his life. But she's also recognizing the reality of what he's done and is faithful to her future king that the Lord had anointed. She's asking David not to kill Nabal or the others in her household. And her main argument is to protect David from blood guilt. She doesn't want the Lord's anointed king to start his reign having sinned against God and have blood guilt on him. Seven times, verses 26 to 31, she uses the name Yahweh. God's holy name, the covenant name. She, she, God may have had her use that to remind David who he belongs to, who anointed him king, who ultimately receives the insult from Nabal's action, and to calm him, correct him, bring him back, to remember Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is the Lord. Abigail seemed to know her word, the word of God too, and to point David in the right direction. And so the Lord protects not only from the enemy without, but the enemy within. We see that here as he stops David in his grace. And David receives the correction with gratitude, with praise to the Lord, and returns to follow God's word and wait for God's providence. Look, for time, we're not reading much here, but do look at verses 32 to 35. 
of chapter 25. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself on my own, by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Grateful. Are there times in our lives where we need God and he has intervened and stopped us? We should worship him. This should be part of our worship and gratitude to God. And there are probably many times we don't even recognize. There, there, if you think back, there are probably times where, where my heart would have run headlong into sin, but God didn't let me have the means to do it. And then other times where I had the means, but he had worked in my heart to stop me from pursuing it. And the reality is, anytime we're not headlong into sin... It's the Lord who should receive all the glory. As Philippians 2 says, it's he that works in us both to will and to do for God's good pleasure. David's faith in this correction was encouraged by seeing God fulfill his promise of vengeance so quickly. Verses 36 to 39. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk, so she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Wow. Some guessed that his heart died because Abigail told him about all the provisions she sent out of his wealth to David. Could be. I, personally, I think as I read it that she also told him about the swords and that God's anointed next king and his 400 men, 401 swords, were coming during that kingly feast of Nabal and would have slaughtered him that night and realizing his heart froze. Well, in any case, note in verse 39, the Lord kept David from evil but returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. The Lord blesses his chosen ones. And believers, if you're in Christ, you're one of his chosen ones. He treats us so amazingly well. We don't deserve it, but he does that. Then David took Abigail as his wife after Nabal had died. A wise wife. God had already used her to stop him from sin. But there is a side note, a foreshadow of trouble to come. God had said, don't multiply wives. And David's beginning to multiply wives. It's going to cost, it's going to bring some consequences to David and the kingdom down the road. And far worse, through his son Solomon in that vein. And then we see Saul giving away David's wife, first wife, to another man, treating David as dead disconnecting David from any claim to the throne. He's still, Saul's still caught up in the mechanisms of this world's intrigue and politics. And, but David, by contrast, is trusting, waiting for God's providence. Number seven, finally, just touch on chapter 26. He, he strengthens David's faith to follow God's word and to wait for God's providence by working through David to proactively demonstrate that he's doing just that, that the Lord's protection and strength has brought him to where he is waiting on the Lord and just following God's word in contrast to Saul, who is not. We see here an emphasis by repetition. God protecting David from the outward enemy of Saul in chapter 24, now again in chapter 26, sandwiching protection from his own heart and where his heart would take him. There, there is a distinction in chapter 26. Again, not raise your hand against God's anointed. The word's clear on that. David's going to follow that. But his faith seems stronger, more mature here than two chapters earlier. And, and in chapter 24, it opens Saul chasing David again. Chapter 26, sorry. And David hears, he goes and to where Saul is encamped. And Saul is sleeping in the center with 3,000 
of his chosen men. So not just 3,000 soldiers, but the top soldiers, the, the elite troops surrounding David. And he, he asks Ahimelech and Abishai, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? And Abishai, right off the bat, yeah, I'll go. And so they're going to make their way down in there. Verse 10. Um, so they get there. Let's back up to verse 9. Sorry. Anyway, Abishai repeats, the, the, like, the, like the men in the cave, and he may well have been one of the men in the cave. He repeats again, look, the Lord has kept them asleep. We're here. We're right at Saul. Let me take the spear and just drive it through his head into the ground. Just one, just one stroke, be done. Let me do it. And verse 10, David said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him or his day will come that he dies or he will go down into the battle and perish. He tells Abishai, no. And then he says, God will do it. And he, and he thinks along, what are some of the many ways God can fulfill his promise? That's a good thing to do. Is think on how powerful God is how faithful God is. If he's promised something, we can know he's going to do it. I wonder if he'll do it this way or this way or maybe a way I've not even thought of. The Lord will take care of Saul and David rests in that. He rests in God's sovereignty and providence and we, we should do likewise. In verse 11, Longman and Garland point out the spear symbolizes Saul's authority and the water jug his life. So he says, don't kill him, but just take the spear Take the water jug. Let's get out of here. And, and by taking those, rather than actually taking his life, he's going to demonstrate the contrast where, where Saul is seeking his life, David's life as God's anointed. David is not going to raise his hand against Saul as God's anointed. But trust the Lord will set it all straight to his glory. Del Ralph Davis writes, any believer will face predicaments in which he does not know how God will bring relief, but does know what is or is not God's will for him. For example, a Christian cannot guess how Christ will bring resolution to a marital problem, but does know that he, for instance, must not commit adultery against his wife. God's ways may not be clear, but our way is, at least enough of it to know what obedience requires. We may wait for God's providence, but we already have God's law, and that is all we need for the moment. Notice as well, verses 19 and 20. Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up, this is David talking to Saul from outside the camp now into the camp, rebuking uh, Saul and Abner and, and all these men for their sins. He says, let him accept an offering if the Lord's displeased. But if it's men... Cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now then do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. David's sharing his heart here to be with the people of God at the house of God, the temple. The application for us is Hebrews 10, not forsaking the assembling together. Do, do we have a passion? David's concerns for his life, there's all this going on, but in the midst of it, he, he has a passion to be worshiping with the people of God in the house of God. We should, we should be the same. And, and there are those listening who cannot be here. They, they have that desire, they cannot, and we understand that. But if we have the ability and we neglect gathering, we're not in a legalistic sense, well, I'm going to show up so I can check the box and earn God's favor. Not, that's not what we're saying. Because he's saved us, because he's made us his, because he's united us as a body of Christ, do we have the heart and the desire to gather and worship together and fellowship and encourage one another? We should. And David sets that example as well. And finally, chapter closes out, David's hope is in the Lord. He's not calling on Saul to change. He's just telling Saul, I, I'm following the Lord. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I trust the Lord. The Lord's going to set it all right, and he will. 
The Lord protects and strengthens David's faith to follow God's word and wait for God's providence to fulfill his promise. And as he does that, the big picture, he's advancing his kingdom plan that he started in Genesis and he'll fulfill at the end of Revelation. Including that through this man, David, will come the Messiah, the King of Kings, who will reign forever, who will provide redemption for his people to be in his kingdom. This is all part of that big picture. Wait for God's providence. His providence is certain that he will fulfill every single promise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example of David and your work in David. Lord, it's ultimately about you. You gave him the faith. You led him to look to your word and follow it and not other things and to wait for your providence. You intervened and stopped his sin and brought him back around. Lord, you are always faithful. And Lord, I pray you'd work in our hearts as your people to to follow your word and to wait for your providence. And Lord, draw others to become your people, to come to Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.